Hey lovelies, before we get started, I wanted to let you know about a few things going on here at Impact Fashion. A lovely sale to benefit our frontline healthcare workers is still going strong. At the time of this recording, there are still beautiful options left for every single size in my inclusive range of 2 through 24. And you now have the option to shop by size and browse only the styles in stock in your size. Shop 40% off and I'll donate 19% of your purchase to get PPE to our frontline healthcare workers by using code LOVELYPPE at impactfashionnyc.com on an entire selection of size-inclusive modest fashion. On the site, you'll also find a whole range of activities you can do with or without the whole family, some of which are even free, all of which are high fashion. Find those by going to the activities tab at impactfashionnyc.com. Enjoy the show. From Impact Fashion, it's Be Impactful, a show about the women making a difference in their own corners of the world. I'm Rifki Itzkowitz, and on today's show, I talk with a comedian about how her early career was met with pushback, what happened when she left her ultra-Orthodox community and found a new voice online, and the things she wants everyone to know about a certain scandal. Put simply, Leia Forster is hysterical. She's got a comedic gift, particularly with characters, that leaves me rolling every time, and I'm a huge comedy nerd, so this was a really fun interview to do. But honestly, she's more than just a seriously funny performer. She is well-spoken, thoughtful, and conscious of the unique opportunities presented to her. And no one is more surprised by her unlikely career than she is. Hello, hello. (laughs) How you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you for coming on today. Uh, Before we get started, I'm going to start with the first question. That's always, what were you like as a little kid? Oh, God. Well, okay, you know what? I could best sum it up with a story, of course, like every good Jew. When I was in third grade, I tried out for Queen Esther for the Purim play. And um, naturally, I did not get Queen Esther, but the teacher called me over the next day and said, guess what? We created a part just for you. And I was like, oh, okay. And um, she's like, we made you the Purim clown. And I was like, but there's no perm clown even in the perm story. She's like, don't worry, Leah, just be yourself. Which really wasn't cool because the other kid who was casted as the perm clown was this like acrobatic, flexible, skinny little kid, you know, and there I was, yep. chubby Chubbenstein, you know what I mean? Yeah. But uh, yeah, that was, that was the start, the helm of my career <laughs> as a comedian. So did you bring the house down as the perm clown? Oh, hell yeah, I killed it. <laughs> So you were always the class clown. Uh, yeah, let's go with that. Yes. <laughs> and at what at what age, like, did you realize that you could really make people laugh? That people just loved listening to you, and that they just that that if a performance was going on, that you could really captivate an audience. Have you always been like that? You know, I was extremely naive. Like to me, making people laugh is just like eating, breathing, sleeping. You know, and I don't even necessarily have the best filter when it comes to that because I I make a joke out of a lot of things. It's also my coping mechanism, right? So I would say like in ninth grade, I was called down by the principal and I thought I'm in trouble. And she called me down because the 12th graders were putting on like the annual comedy and they didn't have enough funny characters. 
and like my whole grade was so jealous that I got chosen. And that was like a moment for me where I was like, Hey, wait a minute. Like even the 12th graders think I'm funny, you know, and the rest is history. Here I am before your eyes. <laughs> well, yeah. Or should I a- say ears, ears, ears. Exactly. Um, when you say that you have no filter, what do you mean by that? I find the funny in basically every situation. Like there's always something funny in every situation. And obviously over the years, I've learned to navigate the line to make sure that I'm not crossing that line. But sometimes when I'm in a situation where it's extremely tense or there's a lot of anxiety, as I say, anxiety or anxiety in the room, then I'll definitely make light of the situation. And obviously like (laughs) my family members sometimes will be like, this is not the time for jokes, you know? Right. But, um, obviously I have a filter, you know, I'm politically correct. And, uh, you know, I work in the corporate world, so I know when to turn it on and turn it off. But in my head, the filter doesn't exist. Like if I could say whatever I want, I would. That's, yeah, it's that like that walking the line and political correctness and comedy is something that a lot of comedians talk about, you know, they talk about what is something that you shouldn't, um, you know, that you should never joke about. There was a couple of years ago, I think it was Daniel Toshin who was making rape jokes. And, and everyone was like, that seemed to be a place that nobody should touch. Um, where is your line? Like, what is something that you will not joke about? Gosh, when you say it like that, I'm thinking there's probably nothing I wouldn't joke about. I mean, obviously, like, I wouldn't joke about the Holocaust. That's not funny. You know what I mean? Right. And I have put jokes on my social media and in comedy clubs, and people have come over to me and told me, like, you know, this is offensive. Now, when you come over and tell me something offensive, I'm open. Like, I want to hear why it's offensive. And once I'm, like, educated on why that's offensive, I wouldn't ever make such a joke again like I have made comments about I threw around the word tanorexic you know like in the summer people get crazy tans you know (laughs) and then a good friend of mine who has an eating disorder said like that's not funny you know you're you know you're you're particularly making fun of like people with eating disorders now I'd be like head I'm like come on it's a joke it's a I'm a comedian don't take anything I say seriously But on the other hand, like, there's enough good humor out there that there's no reason for me to specifically hurt people. So if you bring it to my attention, I'm totally cool with it. I just don't like those people who will publicly, like, humiliate someone and say, that was horrible, that was offensive, like, on a page with thousands of people. Like, message me privately and be like, hey, you know, that wasn't cool, and I'm open to it. You know, if you want to accomplish something, I think the best way to do it is package it properly and then you'll get like the optimal result you know yeah both when giving criticism and when performing comedy I presume that the packaging has a lot has has a lot to to do with that I want to um I want to talk about how you got like how your career got started how does one become a comic how like do you just go to clubs and start performing how does that happen that's adorable that you say that because I didn't step foot into a comedy club as a performer until maybe two years ago and I'm 37. So I've definitely had a late start in life in the secular world. Um, Definitely as a mainstream comedian. And I have to tell you my first performance ever, I bombed in in a comedy club. I was a disaster because it was, I got up on stage and I saw men 
and I was so thrown off because I had never performed in front of men before. And it was like a terrible, terrible performance, like absolutely awful. And it was in a very prestigious comedy club. Like I was like, Oh crap, I blew it. But, um, how did I start as a comedian in our world? In, in, when I say our world, I mean the religious community. I grew up ultra Orthodox. And again, that's a very broad spectrum. Some people would say it wasn't ultra Orthodox, but pretty mainstream Orthodox. You know, my parents, my dad wore a strimal, which is like a, you know, a Hasidic covering. Anyway, so that's how I was raised. And so obviously my humor is very limited. And when I started cracking jokes, I always got the biggest parts in the play, you know, the funniest parts. But when I got married um, to my husband, to be clear, um, someone had approached me. I had a newborn baby and someone had approached me. She was like maybe 10 months old and said, I'm a teacher in, in Satmar High School which is the most ultra, ultra Orthodox high school. And I'm making a little gathering for my teachers. And I was wondering if you want to come crack a couple of jokes. And I was like, what? Like, what am I going to do? Put on a funny hat? Like, what am I going to do? And I'm like, you know what? Give me a couple of lines about your school, each teacher, and I'll see what I come up with. And she paid me $50. And I was like, oh, damn, $50. You know, to me, that was like, right. for what? For showing up and cracking some jokes? Which now it's like, you know, hashtag blessed. Um, <laughs> so basically I showed up and I performed and of course everybody cracked up. And then she told a friend and a friend told a friend. And before you knew it, people were like hiring me for private parties. And then one person who had hired me said, you know, I'm thinking of putting together something to raise money for charity. And I was like, ooh, that would be cool. We should do like a four women only performance by women. Because again, as ultra orthodox members we only perform for women by women and originally when i came up with the idea it was received with a lot of negativity because people were like oh you know we were crossing a line within the ultra orthodox community like women being on stage and being musical and dancing and performing was also like a very gray area it wasn't wrong but it was like you know, not as stringent as the community would like. We got a lot of bad feedback in the beginning, but huh, we raised so much money for the organization that that just opened up Pandora's box because every organization was like, hmm, what a great way to make money. If people were tired of Chinese auctions, you know, put a performer on stage and boom. And then I was hired by everyone and I was being flown around the world. I went everywhere, Israel, London, like every organization was flying me out to perform at their auctions and parties and dinners. And again, only for women, only by women. So, and at that point, the music label like that I worked with in the Jewish community, there's pretty much like only a couple of them, you know, bought my first DVD and the rest is history. I put out like 10 DVDs, three comedy albums. And honestly, I had no competition in the religious, like in the ultra religious world. I was like a household name. And by the way, that was the day when entertainment wasn't free at the click of a button. People actually had to go out and spend 20 bucks on a DVD or 20 bucks on a um, um, CD. And when I would show up to events, people would take pictures with me and they felt like they knew me because I was in their homes every day, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, so you have this, you have this career and then do you want to talk about what happens next? <laughs> we could. Do you want me to talk about what happens next? It's your, it's your show. Well, it's your show. So I, you know, I definitely want to answer the questions that you have. So, but so if you, that's, yeah. 
yeah, you have, you have this career. Um, and I, I knew your name. Like I, I, I'm a little bit younger than you are. I'm 25. And so like, I just knew that like at, like you said, like at Chinese auctions, which are usually kind of boring and like, let me get all dressed up to put a ticket in a box. Why? Um, you were a huge drawer. You were a huge well, drawer. Well, let's just answer that question first, which is something I always made fun of in comedies. Like you ask why get all dressed up to put a ticket in a box? Yeah. You know, first of all, a dollar and a dream, but more so like people walk in and there's this fantasy that you're going to walk out with something. And that's why like they spend thousands of dollars displaying it so that you can almost close your eyes and imagine it in your dining room. You know, right. I was in line at the Chinese auction and this lady pulled out a tape measure and started measuring the couch. She's like, I wonder if it will fit in my house. I'm like, lady, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, lady, yes. you have, you have a better yeah. chance of, yeah, just awesome um but i as like i i'm not part of the super ultra ultra orthodox world i live in queens i've always been kind of removed just from that section so let's just call you a guy for all practical purposes pretty much right you're regular chick so that's me (laughs) (laughs) and i and it was and it was kind of like one day you were there and then one day you were not you just like it was like i you were on every flyer and then you weren't so, okay, so I guess that's what it seems like to someone else on the outside. Um, but for me, there was two Leia Forsters. There was the Leia Forster that the public knew, which um, was, you know, uh, a good Jewish wife, a good Jewish mother, you know, contributing to society in her religious community by being funny and by doing tons of chesed and, you know, and being involved in all these charity organizations. And I was also a high school teacher in like the most mainstream religious schools. And on top of that, I was heading their productions as well. So I was that Leah Forster. And by the way, that was an integral part of me. But then there was another part of me that was struggling with the sect that I belong to in the religious community. Like I love Judaism, I love God, but I wasn't happy with the stringent part of the community that I was born into. And I sort of kept digging my own hole deeper because I was becoming more quote unquote famous in the community and a more like, you know, well-liked teacher and a well-liked member of the community. Um, And my daughter was in a very religious school, just all things that I was digging my hole deeper. But at the same time, I was struggling with you know, my own relationship with Judaism and where I fit in as a Jew, you know, and as a person in that community and also as the wife to my husband, like there was just a lot of internal struggle and it just didn't feel authentic. It felt like I was living two different lives and each were really important to me. So the public saw me disappear from one day to the next, but privately it was years in the making. Um, I was taking all the steps to remove myself from that ultra-Orthodox circle. I took my daughter out of a very religious school. I put her in a more mainstream Jewish school. Um, I had, you know, taken off my wig. I was still covering my hair, but like I was wearing a cap. You know, if I left the gym, I was wearing pants. Like I would till this very day, like I do identify as modern Orthodox, only because I have to identify as something, which is 
caca, if you ask me, no one should have to identify as anything. I'm just a Jew and a person. Um, and the same goes with sexuality. I'm not sure if you want to cover that or not. I don't but mind. to me, it's like sexuality, religion, politics. It's all the same umbrella of we live in a world where people have to identify something when it comes to religion, identify something when it comes to politics, identify something when it comes to religion. I just am a Jew who likes and loves other humans you know, and right. I don't feel like I should be in a box, but unfortunately the world that I grew up in puts you in them. So whatever, but either way, without getting too boring and technical, I had slowly been peeling off the layers, doing all the right moves and steps and slowly figuring out that my marriage wasn't going to work long-term and all, all that stuff. And obviously with help and community and support, I was making the right moves. And the final move to make was to change the public's perception of me, which was the hardest. Because when you have thousands and thousands of people wherever you go, expecting certain things from you, it's like you don't want to disappoint them. And coming from the strict community I came from, I didn't want to even disappoint my parents and the people who loved me and raised me. You know, I didn't want to hurt them, I didn't want to embarrass them, disappoint them, all those things. So that was the last step. And I did do a big farewell tour in the master theater in Brooklyn and I sold out, I don't know, 1200 seats and people were like coming over to me afterwards. Like, why are you retiring? Like, are you nuts? And honestly, they didn't know that it was something I didn't want to do. I love making people laugh and I love entertaining people, but I knew that I couldn't continue doing it in the community, having them believe that I'm a certain way when I'm not. So I walked away um, and it worked out really well because shortly thereafter I was outed and everything, all the last bits that I was holding on to came crumbling down. Um, and it was like a bandaid that was ripped off, but in a way it was a blessing because I don't know how much longer I would have straddled between the two worlds. And that was like, kind of like the patch that I needed to just make the move. Kind of like when God gave Jews the Torah, you know, he sort of like threw it on them and it was like, take it or leave it. Right. So when that moment happened, it was like a choice. And the choice I made was to live an authentic life. And luckily, of course, the process was very hard in the beginning. And I'm always sad that in mainstream media, like there aren't more positive stories about leaving your strict religious upbringing and just finding a more mainstream balance in Judaism that could work for you. Um, but for me, luckily, a lot of my religious friends and the community that I stayed in was extremely good to me and loving to me. And I think they saw past like, you know, the gossip and, you know, the hoopla. Right. And thank God, I have to say, like, I have a really positive relationship with Judaism. Maybe not I'm not the best Jew that I could be, um, but I, I definitely found a place because the Jewish community that I'm a part of is very loving and very accepting. And, um, and I hate to use the word tolerant because like people are lactose intolerant, like you tolerate milk, you know what I mean? Yeah. I don't want to think of myself as something that gives people explosive diarrhea, you know? <laughs> I want to think of right. myself as someone who, you know, people love and 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 want to turn on every day and laugh a little with their cup of coffee you know so right. I'm, I'm pretty blessed yeah it, it sounds the the fact that you are a relatively well-adjusted human being after the trajectory that your life has taken so far I think is a pretty damn impressive accomplishment it seems like almost I don't want to say that it was lucky but it's 
I'm really happy well, for you that you got to orchestrate your exit on your own. Term. Yes, like, but I do want to be clear. Um, you know, because I'm, I've, I've obviously, you know, and I suggest to anyone, cause I get so many messages from people who are like, help, I'm on the journey and I don't know what to do. I never give anyone advice because I'm not a professional. I will guide them to resources and of course therapy. I will say there was a lot of trauma and there are still a lot of sad days. Um, and I don't want to take away from that because there are sad days. At the end of the day, my parents don't speak to me, you know, and at the end of the day, I've lost really good friends that I grew up with and that knew me and knew the kind of mother I was and the kind of person I was and nothing changed. I mean, obviously things change, but I mean, those things are still me and I've lost people and I was fired from a job that I loved from one day to the next. So yes, there were definitely cookies that crumbled and there were definitely sad, traumatic moments and they stay with me, but also... I have the rest of my life ahead of me and I don't want to live in, you know, in survivor mode. I want to live in thriver mode, you know? Right. So it's a choice that I make and it's a choice that you have to make every day. Right. When, how long was it between your farewell tour and when you started performing again? Great question. No one asked me that question. I'll tell you this. When I left, I was under the impression that someone like me would not be accepted in the Jewish community. So I left. All of a sudden, I'm like on Instagram a year later, two years later, not much later. And I start seeing all these bloggers and, you know, um, influencers, and they're not dressed completely, quote unquote, sneeze, according to the strict rules of modesty. And they're dressing really funky and they have like jeans underneath their skirts. And by the way, for those of you that are secular and are listening to this, you're like, what the heck is that? Yeah. Because let me tell you something. There's the gray areas, you know, right. in, in, in any form of um, religion. But I was never familiar with the gray areas. So to me, it was like a brand new world. I was seeing these cool, funky influencers that were baking and cooking and giving mothering tips and performing. And I was like, Hey, like if they can do it, let me try. So I would post little funny stuff on Instagram and Facebook. And all of a sudden, like I started rebuilding a following. I woke up one day, I had 5,000 followers and a week later I had 10,000 followers. And I was like, what people like are following me. And may I say, of course, of course you have the yentas that follow you just because they want to know what you're up to, but people are, um, supporting me as I am. It was a crazy concept to me. You know what I mean? They saw me without a wig. They saw me in pants and they were still following me and still writing all these positive, cool things. Like you're so funny. Thanks for making my day. And I was like, Oh damn. And then I, and then I was offered to perform in a comedy club again. Like, and I was like, wait a minute, is this really happening? And when I walked into the crowd, it was a sold out crowd. All I had to do was put it up on my social media and tickets sold out. And the comedy club was full and full of different kind of Jews, non, you know, non-Jews too, but I'm saying the Jews that were there were like religious Jews, non-religious Jews, modern Orthodox Jews, smart. It was like mind blowing to me, you know? So it was really cool. Yeah, that there could be all of these different people. Because I think it's also something that even when you when you grow up in any, everyone grows up in a situation, right? Whatever, everyone has something that they're sheltered from. Whatever that line is, is different for everyone. But no matter how you grow up, there's always going to be something that you don't touch, that you don't talk about. And when you 
grow up a little bit and when you realize that there's a, a whole world out there, it can be really mind blowing to realize that like, wow, this is not this is not taboo for so many other people or this is not something that a whole lot of other people care about. I want to go back to that first performance that you said that you did in front of men and that freaked you out and totally bombed. How How is your comedy different when you're performing for mixed audiences as opposed to just female audiences? Do you change it at all? And what's that transition like? So the first time that I got up on stage and I saw men in the audience, I wasn't prepared. Because growing up the way that I did, where people were not exposed to YouTube, Netflix, basic things that, you know, your average person has in their home, any joke that I made was already a million times funnier because there was nothing else to compare it to. Now, all of a sudden, I walk into a crowd where everybody's been entertained by really good comedians, and then there's little old me. I was like, oh, damn, I got to step up my game, you know? Right. But the nice part was that it forced me to really challenge myself, which is what was so painful for me. As an artist, anyone with like a creative anything, when you're limited with the kind of creativity you can do, it really puts you in a box. And it's very frustrating because I would walk into like 3,500 people in Union City, which is like super duper Hasidish. It's Klosenberg. When I got up on stage to perform, I literally felt like I was performing for a, a field of cabbages. Now, because imagine all their heads, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so when I was on stage before, I was told, don't do any accents. Don't make jokes about this. Don't make jokes about that. Now, if you watch my Instagram, you'll see that I have about 10 different personalities that I do. I did a sold out show called The Voices in My Head, where I just did all the different personalities. I love that show. People, you know, and people connect with different personalities. I'll get messages like, oh my God, I hate Hadassar. She's so annoying. But then in the same day, I'll get a message from someone like, oh my God, please do more Hadassar. She's so relatable. So everybody relates to different characters. Um, and it's funny because I was so limited with what I can do that the first time I got up on stage, I was still sticking to my limited comedy that I was doing all this time. Suddenly I'm like, Leah, the world is your oyster. You can literally explore comedy right now. And so I'm still there. I'm still constantly pushing myself, you know, right. out of my box, out of my comfort zone. Yeah. And that's what we're all doing every day. You know, if, if you're a growing, achieving person, then that's what you're doing. What is something that is universal? What is, what is, what is a type of joke that works no matter what your audience is? I think mother-in-laws, people really resonate <laughs> with that. Yeah, um, that makes sense to me. You know, like certain, like I'll say like, oh, my mother, people say my mother-in-law is an angel. Um, and I'm like, lucky you, mine is still alive. <laughs> you know, so people <laughs> like that, you know, people can relate to that. I think anything to do with being a frustrated mother, um, being a kid that's disrespectful to their mother, anything to do with parenting, um, anything to do with diet culture, which I try to make a big joke out of, is something people could relate to. And then, of course, people love when I do the influencer, you know, like, hi, guys. Yeah. Um, oh, my God, this product is so amazing. I'm so obsessed because people have freaking had it with influencers. It's like, it's a relationship. It's like you love to hate them. You would be oh. mad if they went away. 
You know, yeah. you need to see them go swipe up, swipe up. You know, you need it so it can aggravate you. you exactly. Know? Exactly. It's how we're going to let out our frustrations on the world. One of the ways yeah. that I actually developed my social media strategy was that I literally, I just paid attention to stuff that other people did that annoyed me. And I was, and I consciously, I never say hi guys. And I will never wish you a happy Monday because it's freaking Monday and I don't want to hear it. Like all of that stuff that everyone. Oh no, no. My favorite is the influencers that go happy. What day is it? Really? Really? Yeah. 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 Right. Right there with you. It's, it's really interesting to me because there's been a lot of talk actually about how you know, especially in um, in the Orthodox community, there's this real gatekeeper mentality around traditional media. So like most magazines are not going to print women's faces. They're only going to publish certain things. They're going to talk about things in a roundabout way. They're, they're not really going to talk about women-specific issues because there are no women in the boardrooms. And also they don't generally care. So like all of those things are not going to get published. And there's been a lot of talk about how social media has been a workaround for that. Have there have been a lot of these um, Orthodox influencers that have come out and, sh- and shared their own voice. And you have definitely benefited from that. What is, what is something that you would say to someone who is looking to, to make a difference in how they're, in how they're perceived in the world and how they would, how they want to present themselves and really take control of their own story? Ay vey, ay vey, vey, vey. Um, what I would say is two things. First of all, you have to show up as your true self. And I think that people really see through bulkaka. I really think so. There are some influencers or social media people out there that are always like, I'm being so genuine. I'm my genuine self. I'm showing up as my real self. Specifically one that I think of, she's like in the beauty industry and she's always talking about how important it is to be genuine, but she photoshops all her pictures of herself too. Like she's a bit on the larger side, big freaking deal. And she photoshops all her pictures to make herself look thinner. And I'm always like thinking if you're claiming genuine, genuine, stop photoshopping your pictures. Like just be, be big and be proud. You know what I mean? I am. But, um, I think that showing up as your real self is really really important and instead of talking it so much just show it it comes through people see real i think real recognizes real you know and to an extent we're all a little bit different when we're on you know like i said i run a home care company so my daughter will make fun of me all the time she'll be like oh your your customer service voice is done you know (laughs) yeah my my mom my 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 family calls that uh rebecca because that's my english name Ah, there you go don't mess with Rebecca. Yeah, because like, he will my cut daughter, you. he'll hear me talking to employees and I'll be like, yes, absolutely. We'll take care of that for you. And she'll look at me like, who is you? <laughs> but you know, there's a difference between being appropriate and putting on a different hat for different occasions. And then just when you're, when you're on social media as yourself, then just be yourself. And that's like the number one thing that I would say. And then the number one the second most important thing I think is that a lot of people do get into it for the wrong reasons and then they get burnt out really quickly. And by the way, even I get burnt out really quickly. I'm not always in the mood of uploading stories. Um, and I figured out a way that I do it that doesn't burn me out instead of every single day coming up with content and posting stuff every day, I will post to my camera roll. 20 at a time when I'm feeling creative and then I keep it in my camera roll and then I just post it as necessary. You know, I'll post it, you know, Monday. Okay. Today, Tuesday, I don't post it really fresh. 
you know? Right. Sometimes I'll post four Tichel Tuesdays in a row on my own, you know, in my own camera. I come right. up with a bunch of ideas and then I just do them. And then I decide what I'm in the mood of that week, what, what I'm in the mood of posting right. that week. Right. Um, Where do your yeah, ideas for the Tichel Tuesdays come from? Because those are so oh my freaking God. funny. I think life. That- life just just the world i think correct me if i'm wrong but that's got to be your most popular character right um definitely i don't know why but i'm not i'm not sad about it um i think that any kind of jew could relate to this woman because they know this woman everyone knows this woman she's you know the cute little naive lady who has eighty thousand businesses in her basement and none of them are legal and um She's like super well-meaning and innocent. And you know, like I grew up, my brother said, you can go get it in a style three. And we laugh about it till today. Like how he said, you know, it's, it's in the grocery, it's in a style three. We're like a style yeah. because he's cute. He was reading, but he never heard it pronounced. Right. And I think that's the world she comes from. She picks up like a Bina magazine and she reads like an article about like, health coaching and now she's like hey i could also be a health coach you know like that's the kind of character she is you know she reminds me of um she reminds me of the character that uh stephen colbert did on the colbert report where he always described that character as a um uninformed well-intentioned like idiot like that was what that was how he he's like he is not and he's not that's exactly what she is yeah, like that it's... That but I'll say something about her. Just in her defense, in Bailey's defense, she's not an idiot. Yeah, she's not an idiot. She happens to be like very... We, in Yiddish, the word is tichtik. That means talented. She's very resourceful. And she, you know, and she knows two plus two is four. It's just that because she doesn't have world knowledge, it comes across sometimes as idiotic. Right. But she's in her, you know, in her own way... She knows a thing or two. She, she is knows. resourceful. She, yeah. I mean, I wish I had as many. She's kids. resourceful. She this, yeah. Like this week, I posted, um, you know, halichasandhadruchas um, dot com, which for those of you that are listening that don't know what that means, it basically means law and and the ways of the law. Now, anyone who knows anything about Jewish law knows there's the law the spirit of the law, the letter of the law, the law in between the law, and the in-between lines in between the law. And when it comes to Jewish law, there's just a loophole around the corner, always. You just got to <laughs> find it. Like, oh, you can't do that on Shabbat, but you can do it with a shinoi, which means if you hold your hand differently, you can do it. Or you're not allowed to eat chametz, you're not allowed to hold on to your chametz, which is like your bread on Passover, but if you sell it to a non-Jew who you know secretly will sell it right back to you after Passover, it's all good. You know what I'm saying? Right, right. And by the way, that's what I mean about humor. I feel like I can always find the funny in every situation. Like, you guys know that I'm divorced. And when I went for my get, which is the Jewish divorce, the rabbi had to give my husband, my ex-husband, um, tools to write the get like you know you have to use a certain pen or certain like specific tools to write it but nobody has those tools today because it's like a feather and an ink and nobody you know so basically he's officially according to the law supposed to buy it and bring his own so basically like the rabbi will hold it up and go like i am lending you this you know and announce it loud in like a very mock wedding kind of way 
and he plunked it into his arm. And like my ex-husband was like, what the hell am I supposed to do with this? <laughs> he just like winked at him and was like, just go with it, go with it, you know? Right. So I was always like, man, those are some serious loopholes. And by the way, I'm not mocking, you know, Jewish law at all, just to be very clear. I'm just saying, it's funny that within the law, there's secondary law, you know? And, right. and it's funny. Yeah. I think it's funny. It, it, I, I was nervous about posting it because I was like, I don't want people to come for me and be like, why are you mocking Jewish law and halacha? And I'm really not. I'm just trying to find the lighthearted, you know, side of right. it. Well, I think that also there's, I think that what's really clear specifically about the, the comedy that you do is that it's really clear that it comes from not it, it doesn't come from a bad place you know it's not you're not trying to you know shove it in anyone's face that this is what i'm doing this is what what you're doing and i think that that goes back to what you said about authenticity that you know when you're just being yourself and you know you're showing you know i'm comfortable as myself with myself as i am and then these are the things that i think are funny about how i grew up or where or how i live now and people really connect to that i know i certainly do and i think it's freaking hysterical what is Thank something you. You're welcome. What is something that what what is something that surprises you the most about the trajectory of of your career? Definitely, if I would have closed my eyes ten years ago, when I was struggling and stuck and closeted in so many ways and miserable, living the double life that I was living, I would have never dreamed that this would be where I would be at this point. And I'm not even anywhere near where I want to be, but I know that I can be. Like the world is an oyster and um, that shocks me the most. And I never take it for granted. Like every time I post something and then all of a sudden I have all these likes and new follows, I'm like, how? Not that I don't think that I'm funny, I do, um, but I'm still surprised at how much support and, and, you know, and how many opportunities I've had. I think it's really cool. Yeah, when you, when you are putting together, when you're putting together your, your routines, when you're doing your parties and, and all of that, what are, what are the things that get most requested? Well, the Tijo, obviously. Okay, aside, aside from her. <laughs> yeah. Um, this is going to be funny, but probably my Natasha character. Oh. You know, people mm -hmm. like really relate to her because she's not like the standard brush. She's not like the Russian mamachka from Moldova. You know, she's next generation. She's already like super sophisticated and she like, you know, goes to Kingsborough College and she's becoming a dental hygienist, you know. So people really relate to that like relatable, like jappy kind of like, you know, um, sophisticated Russian girl. Um, and she's always like single, you know. Um, so she's like my biggest request. And then another huge request is always Shira Devora. She's like the, you know, like the, the single girl who's like just came back from seminary and she's amazing, you know, and she comes back and her parents like want to kill themselves because like her mother had regular milk in the fridge and she was like, ma, it's like OUD, it's trade, you know, you have to throw it out. Which, by the way, again, for those of you listening that don't understand what that is, there's kosher, and then there's kosher, kosher, glot, glot, glot. Right. So that girl who comes back after spending a year in Israel comes back, like, on a high, you know, and now standard kosher ain't good enough for her either, you know? Right. Oh, my God. Like, I know so many of her. 
and she goes up with a bucker and he was like, what do you do for fun? And she looked at him and she's like, what do you mean? What do I do for fun? Life isn't fun. Okay. You know, that girl. Yeah. Oh, I know. Jeez, I know so many of that girl, which I think is why you're, I think it's why your comedy works so well, because all, all of your characters, as you're doing them, I'm seeing an actual person in my life who is yeah. exactly that person. And that's, that's like the I, biggest messages that I get on Instagram. People are always like, I know her. I know this one. I know this woman. You right. Know? Right. I, I see her in front of me. What are the people at your, you, you mentioned that, you know, you have a home health aid business. What do they think about Leia Forster comedian? So... Nobody knew. I, I work in a, in a secular environment and all my employees, 95% of them are secular. So they had no clue who I was outside of work and they just knew me as boss. And then, I don't know if you heard about that situation that I had a year ago or a year and change ago at a kosher restaurant and blah, blah, blah. Long story short, I was on the cover of the paper. And then of course I was on like CBS TV and NBC News at night, and it was like a big to-do. When I showed up at work the next day, my employees took out the newspaper, and of course on the cover it said, comic. And they were like, you're funny? You make jokes? And then people who know me as a comedian are like, wait a minute, you're serious? Like, you have another, you know? So, it's funny. It's, yeah, you, you really had this Jekyll and Hyde existence. <laughs> I mean, you know what I mean. I mean, besides the fact that he was like a serial killer and a psychopath. My, yeah. Minus the psychopathic tendencies, I think at least. Um, when when you did when that whole thing happened with um, with the restaurants having to cancel your show, what I mean, an argument can be made that that situation, as awful as it was, really was a part of making you more popular. And I don't mean to say that that that's worth you know, one or the other. Um, but how, how do you feel about looking back on that now, you know, over a year later? Um, I would want everyone to know that I never went to the media and I, I'm not a fan of being that person. You know, I think that there's good and bad in every community. And I personally don't want to be the one to put the bad out there. Um, Although I don't judge anyone who does because it's their own pain and their own story. But for me, I didn't need necessarily to involve the secular media in what happened. I put it on my social media page after the second restaurant kicked me out, after they promised me that they wouldn't. And at that point, I felt very dejected, especially because I was being super respectful with my private life and not putting anything out there on social media. Being that I was taking such measures to be respectful... I felt that it was so hurtful. I was hurt and I'm human. And I went on my social media page, which is private. And I put it up there and someone sent that to the daily news and they just showed up at my house and, you know, and then 12 o'clock at night said, by the way, we're putting you on cover. So it was going to go to print whether I wanted it to or not. So at least I spoke to them and I tried to spin it in a positive way, which was, it was not the restaurant's fault at all. You know, these were good people who, who wanted to keep their businesses open. And what should they do if a mashkiach, which is the person who gives the kosher certification, threatens to walk away from them? Then they can close shop and they don't have a business anymore. I don't want to put anyone out of business, you know? But at the same time, I don't want to be kicked out. And you know what? 
sometimes people ask like, why don't people put their business on social media? You know, for some people, it's very healing. Some people really benefit from the validation that people give them. They hear their story and they send them support, you know, supportive messages and love. And that could be really helpful and healing when you're going through a difficult time. Right. With, with everything that happens with something like this, that, that healing power of putting your, of putting, putting the whole mess out there and just saying, you know, this is what happened. This is how I feel. Did, did a lot of people assume that you had kind of engineered this controversy? Yes. And I don't blame them for assuming that because they only see what they see. But I know the truth. And the truth is, is that I never went to the media. I had no intention of going to the media. I put it on my page because those are my supporters. And it was taken to the media from my page. And so when they reached out to me, the journalist, and said, we're printing the story with or without you, I was like, wait, let me give you the correct story. You know, because I don't want it to be like, oh, these owners are horrible people. They're not. They're part of the kosher business and they have to run their business with a kosher certification. If I perform, they lose their kosher certification. It's really out of their control. It just sucks that it went down that way. And I do like what came out of it. What came out of it is that when you walk into a kosher restaurant, all the kosher restaurant is responsible for is serving you kosher food. And everything else needs to be taken up with your local rabbis and your lifestyle and your choices. Um, so I was happy that that came out right. of that. And by the way, the same thing with another thing that came out later in the media, which was, I don't know how much I want to talk about it, but let's just say, you know, wedding videos went around. And that was really hurtful to me also, because not only did I have on our invitation, please do not post anything on social media. When people walked in, it was on every table please don't post this on social media. And then all of a sudden, during the meal, friends of mine came over to me to tell me that they're getting pictures and videos forwarded from someone who was at the wedding, obviously. And people thought I put it out there. Now, I would never put it out there for so many reasons, but A, because my private life is no one's business. Whether I would be with a man or a woman, it doesn't matter. Number two, I have respect for my community and my family. And I wasn't trying to put anything in anyone's faces. Um, but unfortunately, someone at the wedding had a little bit too much to drink and she was Snapchatting it. And she has a lot of, she's a babysitter for the, a lot of people in the Hasidic community. And all it took was 60 people on her Snapchat to see it. And boom, it went everywhere. And everyone but again, it. I know my truth and I can kick and scream from here to tomorrow. I didn't do that. I would have never put something like that out there, but it happened. And um, lots of people reached out to me to say how inspirational it was and how hopeful they felt, you know, for a positive future about being able to stay in the Jewish community and still, you know, love who they love and build community with who they love. But that wasn't me. Until this very day, I am upset about it. I believe that it was mine. It was my vulnerable private moments that were taken from me, you know? Yeah, and that's... That sucks, and I'm really sorry that that happened. I wanna, I wanna wrap up now, and um, the the thing that I want to end up with is that if there is a couple of things, but um, what would you say to someone now who is maybe either a part of some kind of uh, 
you know, either a religious community or someplace where um, who they love might not be accepted. What is something that you would say to someone who's on that journey now? I would say your safety comes first. And what might have been right for me isn't necessarily right for you. You know, you take someone who has five children and the entire lifestyle that they built is based on a community and structure and family. It's not easy to just point to someone like that and say, go live your truth. Like at what expense you have five children, you have, you know, your finances to think about and your mental health to think about. It's not necessarily the right choice for everyone. For me, the right choice was being authentic. I was super duper successful in my community. I had the most success that a person in my community could have with their talent. I made real money off of it. I was really well known. I was appreciated. But ultimately inside, I was not happy because I wasn't being authentic. So for me, I chose authenticity because to me, success equal authenticity. You know, if I'm standing up on stage and performing for 1,500 people and 1,500 people don't know who the real me is, that doesn't feel good. So for me, that was my choice and I had to live my truth. So my suggestion would be to you figure out what's safest for you. Okay. If somebody wants to hear more from you, Leah, where can they go? Uh, at Leah Forster on Instagram is probably the best. L-E-A-H-F-O-R-S-T-E-R. And I do want to take a moment to acknowledge earlier on, I didn't want to interrupt you, that you mentioned you're 25 years old. Go you. You're 25. <laughs> you're doing a podcast. You know, you're sprinkling your podcast with all kinds of different interest pieces, which is super cool. So keep doing you. Don't give up. Even if you have two listeners, you know, stay to it because it's what you love to do. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Last question that I want to ask you is what I ask everyone who comes on the show. And that is to you, Leah Forster, in your work, in your life, and how you move through the world, what does it mean to you to make an impact? Um, well, God gave me talents and it's my obligation to utilize those talents to contribute to the world. Um, so to me, impacting the world means very little. If somebody wakes up in the morning and laughs because of something that I posted and it gives them an oomph to their day, ba-bam, mission accomplished. Fabulous. Thank you so much for coming on today, Leia. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. You can find the link to Leia's Instagram in the show notes. You'll also find links to at-home activities perfect for quarantine, some of which are free, all of which are high fashion. Impact Fashion is a line of size-inclusive, modest fashion. Right now, you can get 40% off using code LOVELYPPE, and I'll donate 19% of your purchase to help get PPE to our frontline healthcare workers. Access all of that by swiping up on the cover art or going to impactfashionnyc.com. To hear more episodes, be sure to subscribe. If you enjoyed this episode and want to help more people hear it, leave a review or a quick rating. It will make my day. The episode art was designed by Michelle Moses, original music composed by Nissan Fetman. This episode was produced and hosted by me, Rifki Etzkowitz. Catch me on Instagram and Facebook at impact.fashion.myc. As always, here's to making an impact together.